Hello and welcome to A Couple of Europhiles, where we explore cultural realities and dissonance, where we generally focus on Europe, but do stray every now and then. And today I'm going to interview a well-known musician, an amazingly talented man I've known for decades, Seattle's premier piano man, Victor Janusz. I've been wanting to interview another major player from Seattle, where I grew up, a city I wrote about with deep gratitude in my book called A European Odyssey, How a Boxer's Daughter Found Grace. Seattle has a deeply entrepreneurial ecosystem, producing about 35% of America's exports, but it's always boasted a thriving art scene, and I can't think of a finer candidate than Victor Janusz to bring this home to our listeners. We're living in fluid times, so hey, let's cruise through and explore the arc of an artist's life and capture some of Seattle's unique theater, club, and cabaret events. Let's take a trip with Vic, starting in New York, where he began fusing music and theater, then follow his move back to Seattle, working full-time as a successful artist, forever honing his unique gift of storytelling through music. Vic's been entertaining Seattle for decades. What better way to stray away from oppressive news cycles and enter the world of romantic songs, of theater? Let's bring back that lost art of singer-songwriter, those charming words and music that move us away from our troubles, that aim high and lift our spirits, a much-needed reality, now more than ever. Let's dive into a career full of activism, and passion and romance, and play some of Vic's favorite tunes. As one critic said of Vic's voice, it's got a streetwise feel with a dash of Randy Newman's sardonic philosophy. So yes, let's take a fantastic ride along the emotional spectrum and cover some songs I know will move you, the listener, deeply and completely. So without further ado, welcome Victor Janusz. Hello Bailey, how are you? Hey, I'm great, but I'm excited to start with our first tune. It's called Born in a Tent. And I just love it. I think it beautifully illustrates your gift for storytelling, Vic. My mom was in the circus An artiste upon the trapeze She'd glide through the air with Clyde and Pierre But which one is dad? Tell me, please Which one is dad? Tell me, please strong man, the lion tamer with those eyes, or maybe the guy in the tux and the tan, the MC who barks out the lies, the MC who barks out the lies. Born in a tent between acts at a sideshow to a woman who just loves to fly, sometimes through the air without a net. Sometimes on a dare with a man she just met And sometimes a baby gets Born in a tent between flips And a handstand to a woman who don't like to land I hope my dad was a superman not the clown with the big sneeze And not the horse poop scooper man Or a big suited gangster sleaze Not a big suited gangster sleaze Born in a tent between 
an alien from outer space. You saw mommy fly the trapeze. I resemble an alien with a bit of grace. I've been told by children who tease. I am told by children who tease. Born in a tent between acts at a sideshow to a woman who just loves to fly. Sometimes through the air without a net. Sometimes on a dare with a man she just met. And sometimes a baby gets. Born in a tent between flips and a handstand to a woman who don't like to land. Child looks up saying, "Mommy, are you ever frightened to fall?" Claws off me, laws off me, keep it all. Don't talk of the ground, don't you see? I'm already there. Stand to a woman who don't like to land. Which one is dad? Tell me, please. Which one is dad? Tell me, please. Which one is dad? Tell me, please. Okay, take it away, Vic. Well, you know what's interesting is I dropped out of college at Pitzer Pomona because I had an acting teacher there who cast me in a couple of lead plays when I was a freshman and a sophomore. And you weren't supposed to do that. Those major parts were supposed to go to the seniors. But he said, well, he's actually ready to do these parts because he has a real knack for acting. He understands that it's basically you create the character acting is action and he he kind of goes for it and he, he used to tell his advanced students it's like being in an action hero movie you know you have to be as active as possible you can't stay in your head the whole time he also would tell people look at this guy he acts with his whole body and you have to use everything so i was very flattered that i was singled out my major originally in college was going to be visual arts i was going to be a painter I know you go to college to become a painter. Are you kidding? My father would say, well, when you get there, you'll study sociology, literature. Maybe I think you're going to become a teacher. I think you'd be a really good teacher, he'd say. And I didn't want to be a teacher. I had all these other ideas. I wanted to be a movie star or a stage star or a director. So uh, I had my own ideas and no one seemed to be listening to me. So this teacher, whose name was Michael Bloom, said, you should just go to New York. You would be accepted into Uta Hawkins' class right now. I'll go to the after studio and start taking classes. And I bet you'll start getting cast in plays. So I went when I was exactly 20 years old. I went with a couple of friends who had graduated from Pitzer Pomona with theater majors. They, were, they had their degrees. I did not. So I went and I began studying. Uh, I had a very influential teacher named Barbara Coggan. You had to be accepted into her class. And I was, and I was a very serious actor. I remember going to see plays on Broadway, sometimes with my teacher. 
my teacher was an actor on Broadway. She was in a play called Gemini. And she really took me under her wing and said, like that Michael Bloom did at Pitzer. They said, you have a, you have a knack for this. Not everybody is kind of born to be an actor. And you really are, you're at home. You're a theater animal. I did start getting cast quite a bit. I studied with people like Herbert Berghoff. Sandy Dennis was another one who took me under her wing. I would lose parts in plays that would go to people like Matthew Modine or Kevin Bacon. My self-esteem would suffer. So Sandy Dennis was very good for me because she told me right up front, I'm not going to be able to teach you anything. Every time you bring a scene into class, I cry. There's something about you that is very sensitive and vulnerable. And you, you really move me. You make me cry every time. And I forget to watch you as a teacher. So I have very little to teach you. But she was good for me because I kept getting knocked off. I wouldn't get parts that I really wanted that would advance me. So to have a multiple Tony Award winner and an Oscar-winning actress like Sandy Dennis fawn over you, I think she tried to help me with a few referrals that didn't go anywhere. But I stayed in New York for six years. I did a lot of different stuff. I joined a band for the first time. I originally was hired to do their publicity. And then the piano player had a heart condition. He was a young man of like 30, but he had a heart condition and he couldn't perform live anymore. And the lead guitarist said, well, get Victor, the publicist. He, these songs are easy. And he's been playing some of them on his break. So that's how I broke into the band. And I, I was in that band for two years. I got work as a model, which surprised me because I was a serious actor. And I didn't think I was good looking enough to be a high fashion model. A few people disagreed with me that were photographers and casting directors for modeling shoots and commercials. One of the commercials I got was, was for Lancome and Isabella Rosalini was in it. It was Isabella and three models. Remember the other two models, one was a pre-med student and one was a, a guy in law school, but they were funding their education with being models at Ford I think the other one was from Wilhelmina. I was from some little agency, but the woman hired me because I had been in a play where I had to shave my head like it is now. Nobody had a shaved head in 1981 or 82. And it was a production of Measure for Measure by Shakespeare. The director was setting it in the Edwardian era when all the bordellos had to have, they all had to get their head shaved because there was a lice epidemic or something. So he was setting it at this time and said, you have to shave your head. So I did. And my agent was mad at me and said, now nobody's going to hire you because you have this shaved head. Call me in three months when the hair is back. But this Cassie director happened to run into me on the street and she was from Italy. And she said, you, it's you. She had hired me before. She said, you're what we need. You look like a little French boy. So she put me in the commercial as the third model. I remember they paid us very well. It was a very high hourly. It would be considered high for today's standards. It was something like 260 an hour. And most of the time we sat in our Airstream trailer. trailer. We were in Washington Square. It was 10 degrees and a very sunny day. Every, and we worked for five days. We did the same little thing over and over until it was time for the lunch break. I don't know why it took so long to film a 60 second commercial, but I had some direction to walk down this little lane toward the arch and La Bella, Isabella, would have her big white mink and her little doggy. Actually, she was walking the dog on some shoots and on the others, she was holding the dog. And I was supposed to walk by and smile and she would extend her arm and touch my arm and keep going. So one time I got a little excited and I thought, well, I'm going to do something different because I'm a serious actor. So I'm going I'm to change up my motivation and all this at each time. And so when she touched my arm, I touched hers back and did a very kind of warm uh, hello. 
Yeah, the director, I remember his name was Enzo. Enzo Castellari. He screams, cut! And he comes running up to me, he comes charging at me, and I'm a little afraid. He goes, do not touch La Bella. Nobody ever touched La Bella. You touch her again, we throw you out. They hired me again, and they said, you know, you're not seen in the commercial, but your hand is. Uh, it was another one that was done inside. She was, I think, the second time she was four months pregnant. I remember that because she looked really sad, and I thought, she was very young. She's about the same age as me, so she was pretty young, and she was going to have her first baby, and I, I, I heard it was Martin Scorsese wasn't going to marry her or something. This is all very gossipy now, but... <laughs> And, and so she had this bizarre entourage around her. We still couldn't touch or talk to her, which I thought was weird because we all took our lunch breaks together in a restaurant that would have the banquet room closed off for us. And we weren't allowed to touch or talk to her directly. I, I'm very happy by her career trajectory because she has actually become quite a good actress. And I, it's kind of been fun to see her going, yeah, we worked together early on when you were very sad looking and very quiet. But anyway, so I did a little of that. I got photographed by some great photographers. I continually worked in off-off-Broadway plays. I did a couple movies. I was in one where Robert Duvall directed me, and I had like a few lines, but I ended up getting cut out of the movie, which is typical of my luck at the time. When my band broke up, after six years in New York, the band broke up. The leader decided he was going to go work with Suzanne Vega, who had seen him in a couple of our gigs and said, I want that guy to be my lead guitarist. They hit it off. They wrote songs together. And he was part of that big hit album with Luca and everything. I stayed in touch with him for a while. He was always very encouraging to me. He's, he's the first person who told me I had written a song for the band called Late Into the Night. And it's on my retrospective. It's the first song that I recorded with my Seattle band. It's a ballad. And he said, keep writing songs because that's a really good song. It's very original. You have a very original take with songwriting. The leader of our backup singers went on to great success as well. She toured with Bette Midler and Celine Dion as, as the lead backup singer for those, for those women. And she told me the same thing because she was a songwriter. She caught attention of those big names with her songs she submitted. So she told me the same thing. You should be writing songs. I liked when I liked when people that were really successful said, you're supposed to be an actor. You're supposed to be a songwriter. <laughs> and went, okay. <laughs> and it still happens. People keep telling me, you're supposed to go back to directing. The singing at the piano, I know you make a living at that, and that's great, but you've got to be directing plays at the same time. You're, you're really a director. Everybody gives me their own subjective take on me. And it kind of all started in New York. Uh, back to the band. The band broke up. Mark went off with Suzanne Vega. I was kind of on a downward spiral. I couldn't get, nothing was happening for me. I didn't even have a place to live at one point. I had to move in with a friend. And my dad called and said, why don't you come home to Seattle for the summer? No one's seen you in the longest time. We've seen you twice in six years. Come home and regroup. Suddenly, that sounded like a very good idea. So that's, that's when I left New York. I spent six years there. I met a lot of people that I'm still in touch with. The world is small. You run into people. Okay. Arrivederci, New York, and all that. So, hey, let's move on to another tune. This one's called A Song to Love, where we get to hear what one critic suggests is your signature casual and sincere singing style. See the girl with the sad eyes 
She knows there are rules Wears her heart on her sleeve She's easy to leave Got a secret to keep So afraid she will lose Play her the blues She'll try not to weep Suddenly there is no one To make her come alive So tonight she finds A song to love A song to love A song to love She'll find a song to love A song to understand Wash over you Like the sea does the sand oh, That's a lovely song. This also gives me a chance to use one of my favorite quotes from Joan Didion. How it's a good idea to stay on familiar terms with our former selves. So Vic, let's explore your former self, your early theater life in Seattle, and successful theater company called Triad Ensemble. And this gives us an opportunity to highlight Seattle's fringe and mainstream theater scene in the 90s, which was just phenomenal. You played such an important role. So can you elaborate on how Triad Ensemble came into being and what you were able to accomplish? I would be happy to. I, you know, it was a really heady time for me coming back to Seattle because I did initially come back just for three months. As I think I mentioned to you where we spoke earlier this week, uh, the, the final blow to me in New York was that I auditioned at the Public Theater a number of times for Joe Papp, Rosemary Tischler, the whole gang. And they were just about to do the world premiere of Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart which even before it opened, people were saying, this is going to blow the roof off the world because it's the first real serious play about AIDS. And Kramer, of course, was the founder of ACT UP. He was an Oscar-winning screenwriter. He was a guy with a great career as a writer, a novelist, and uh, and in the movies. And he had written this play and at the same time founded ACT UP. So he was an interesting kaleidoscopic kind of figure to begin with. But Joe Papp was already saying, this is a, like a play Ibsen would have written. So I auditioned. I thought I was going to get in the cast. I didn't. That was when I went to Seattle at my father's advice. And oddly enough, when I was here, there was a guy, a director from Seattle, who went through the public theater audition process. He had convinced Larry Kramer to give him the rights to the West Coast premiere of this much-coveted play. Pap was saying, no, it's got to be L.A. or Chicago first, then maybe Seattle. But Kramer was so impressed that Nick Flynn, the director from Seattle, came out there and was lobbying for the play and watching auditions and staying for the week and, and, and trying to learn as much as he could about Kramer. Kramer said, this guy impresses me. I'm giving him the rights. So they call me up and say, hey, do you want to audition? You're here in Seattle. And I said, I don't know. I went, they called me back for about five times for the normal heart. And then they called me and said, we want you to play three smaller roles and understudy the lead. So it's a four month contract. It's going to run for at least two months after two months of rehearsal. And if it, if we can do it, we're going to keep running it. So it ended up being a six month contract and it kept me in Seattle. Now in that play was an actress, one of the leading actresses in Seattle. Her name is Jane Tiny. 
I just fell in love with her in the theater, sharing a dressing room, watching her every night. I thought this woman is like Uta Hagen. You know, she's she's that dedicated, that committed. Sharing a dressing room, going out after the show, we got to know each other really well. And I would say things like, there's a great role, there's a great role for you in a play by Ugo Betty called The Queen and the Rebels. I saw Colleen Dewhurst do it on Broadway. You should do that play. And she had never heard of it. It's funny, about a year and a half later, I was directing that play with her in it. <laughs> so talk about your dreams coming true. So I decided to form my theater company here. I thought I should form a theater company here because it's a very, it's so easy to live in Seattle. It's so beautiful. Most cities this size in 1986 had about three equity theaters. Seattle had 12. They also had a fringe theater movement happening, which meant if equity, if there were too many equity actors here and they weren't working for a six month period, they would, they would put a showcase on just like they do in New York. So you had a great volume of activity, a very artistic, robust activity happening. And that's what I fell into when the normal heart closed. I started auditioning for other plays, but I decided I would direct Jane Taini in a couple one acts. And that's what I did. From that, I decided I'm going to file nonprofit organization status and begin my own company. And I'm going to call it Triad. And we're going to do neglected classics of major playwrights. We're going to do new works. We're going to do whatever we want, but we're going to create our own identity. And Jane joined me as co-artistic director, and we were off and running. We attracted a lot of attention. A lot of it was, who's this new crazy guy in town? With the, um, I had a big Elvis pompadour, and I was everybody thought I was on speed or drank too much coffee. And I had a bit of a New York accent because I had lived there for six years. So I go, who wants to go out for coffee? You know, I, I didn't realize I was saying coffee. So they thought I was kind of nuts. That's why I was called back five times for the normal heart. They wanted to be sure I wasn't some maniac. That's what the casting director later told me. You know, who is this guy? He's nuts. But the casting director said, you've got to cast it in the normal heart because it's a play about New York and we'll have a New York actor in it. <laughs> so anyway, but back to Jane and Triad, we started that company and I was going to try it for a year to see what happened. But, you know, it ran for seven years because I began, I became a grant writer by fault. I guess Melissa Hines from the Empty Space Theater, who was also a King County Arts Commissioner at the time, she said, you know, you're one of the best kept secrets here. Where did you study grant writing? Where did you get your degree from? Or what workshop did you take? And I said, Melissa, the workshop I took to learn how to write grants was at the King County Arts Commission. The, you know, the week before the grant is due, you have that free workshop to go over your grant. That's where I learned how to write them, the service you provide. I, I learned it like I kind of learned everything, mostly the, the, the hard knocks, the, you know, you learn by doing. Well, Vic, speaking firsthand from someone who knew you back then, it really was your passion. It was extraordinary. Your passion for the arts and your ability to adapt and doing grant writing, that's that's not an easy skill set to acquire. But it was just that your gift for promoting the arts, promoting theater. Advocacy. Advocacy. I, Francia Russell at the ballet told me that. She said, you know, you could sell it. You could sell a used car to anybody. And I said, no, Francia, I couldn't sell a used car to save my life. But I could sell the arts. I could sell the ballet. Well, you were fantastic at promoting Triad, but it was it was a fantastic ensemble. Little wonder you and Jane Tiny ended up working together. What a career she's had. I mean, what haven't we seen her in? And as far as TV, she always seems to seal the scenes, like scenes in Mad Men and Boston Legal. She went to L.A., yeah. She went to L.A. with Cider House Rules, which was a production at Seattle Rep. It went down there for four weeks. She attracted an agent, which happens to a lot of the very best actors from Seattle. They get in something that goes to the Mark Taper Forum. Somebody sees them, represents them for a while. They get in a couple things. 
Jane established herself, I think, fairly quickly. She became known to casting directors. People like Ken Olin, I think, is what she told me very recently. He he spotted her and said, get her. She learns her lines really quickly. She she creates a full character, like a theater actor. And she, she learns her blocking and hits her marks and does all the technical stuff. She'll do three days of work in one day. <laughs> so Jane was not only exceptional as an artist, but she was economical. <laughs> so those two things go together. For those of you looking to be uh, in film and television in Los Angeles, Jane has been in everything. I can't keep up with her, her stuff. I know that she's a regular in the Ray Donovan series with uh, John Voight and Lee Schreiber, who I love. And her character is Harriet Greenberg, the accountant. But we're still in touch. She just stayed at my house that I, you know, that I own with my twin sister, Carla. She came and visited us this summer and stayed for a few days. It was during our heat wave, so we hung out in the garden a lot. And it was, it's great fun. You know, we, we reminisce about all the shows we've done, what's happening now, who's still with us. Who, yeah, she's one of those people that, you know, when you're in this work, in any endeavor of the arts, the people that really dig down deep with you and work with you, they're family, you know, they're family in the long run. Now you guys had great chemistry. So, hey, it's time for another song. Let's play Just Another Sunday and move into your activism and some other parts of your life. Oh, yes. <laughs> stumbled on my own There's nothing safe about you Flying far from home Walking through your dreams A lover came to me No one can replace The one who set me free Dancing through these dreams A nightmare came my way Now it's all become Just another Sunday thing about the song just another sunday i'm so glad you chose it for the songs of mine you're showcasing today because many people have said that is by far your best song and i go oh how did it happen we know that you lost the love of your life your partner during the aids epidemic that it's about him and i said it, it is about him the peculiar thing about the song is that it started with the theater because we did a two-character play called seven sundays it was a two-hander it was about a broadway dancer early in the epidemic who got aids didn't have a family to go home to and they had just started the buddy program in new york city where gay men would go and visit somebody who had no one visiting him who was dying and so this takes course over seven Sundays where a closeted, fussy little bank teller from Brooklyn, played by me, goes to visit this Broadway dancer. And over the course of seven Sundays, they fall in love. The little bank teller gets a stronger sense of himself, himself comes out of the closet. And the, of course, the Broadway dancer dies, but he dies knowing that he wasn't going to be a uh, 
an asshole his whole life. He actually met somebody he really fell in love with instead of just had a relationship and moved on to the next guy, as it was. I wrote a song for that play because I also had to do the sound design. When you run a little theater company, sometimes your sound designer quits because he gets a better job. I said to the director, who happened to be Jane Tiny at the time, I said, I'll just do the sound design. She said, great, let's keep going. And I wrote a little song. It was just a ditty. And it was the first couple verses of Just Another Sunday. MJ Williams, a great jazz singer, she sang it for me in the studio. We went into and to get this little bit of recording to go with the rest of the sound design. Fast forward to 1992, when the theater was winding down, I met Lance, we moved in together. He developed AIDS-related brain cancer. He took his life on Thanksgiving Eve in 1993. He wanted to, as he put it, he wanted to lose his life before he lost his mind. I took care of him, you know, the last year of his life, we were living together in West Seattle. By that point, the theater, we had folded. And so this is what I did with the last year of his life. I just lived with him, loved him, took care of him. After he died, I kept thinking of the song. And I completed the song. After his death, I completed it for him. And I wrote the bridge, I wrote another verse, and I wrote the arrangement. I ran into people who worked on that production, and they said, after I had written it, they said, the song wasn't that long in this show. And I said, no, in a very bizarre twist, Life imitated art for a change, and, and that was how that, that song became. During Triad's run in 1991, I did have an opportunity to go to Amsterdam in the, their first international conference of psychosocial aspects of HIV and AIDS. They were trying to get somebody to do a lecture about how AIDS was reflected on television, movies, theater, anywhere. I think they were trying to get Vito Russo, if you know who that was, because he did a, a very similar kind of lecture using video clips. It was very popular. It was, it, was, it was all about the celluloid closet. He did it mostly about movies and how gay people were depicted in movies. So they wanted him to do this. And he was too sick at that time. And then they tried to get a whole bunch of other people. And a couple of people I knew in L.A., a filmmaker and a, um, a screenwriter slash singer, they knew of me. And they said, hey, they, so they told the committee chair, they said, there's this artistic director, a young guy up in Seattle. He loves to talk. I bet he'll do it. <laughs> so they called me up and of course I was available. And of course I did it. So I went and, and did this fabulous presentation about how the uh, AIDS was being depicted in television and movies. And I had the clips and I met a lot of fun people. And oddly enough, I think the seven artists that traveled to that conference representing our country, there were 30 countries represented. And that was exciting because most of them couldn't speak English. So they all had a translator with them, which I thought was interesting. I was, I was giving a lecture that was being translated. That, that's kind of a one of once in a lifetime experience in a way, unless you do international conferences all the time. And that was really exciting. But I think of the seven or eight of us that went, there's only two of us still alive, which is just an interesting detail. A, a lot of them had AIDS and that fueled their activism. But when I came back from that in 1991, I, that's when I became involved with Lance very seriously. And everything happens so quickly. It seems everything happens so fast when you're, you're younger. It happens fast now too, but in a different way. When I look back, I go, gee, the theater, the theater only lasted seven years, but it was a great run. And then my time with Lance was only two and a half years, but it felt like 10 years. There was so much in that relationship. And it was still with me to the loss of him. It's been very, a couple of times I've had forays into another relationship. I thought I was going to go somewhere, but I think he was the one. So anyway, he lives on in the song. 
I also wrote another song, which is on the retrospective about, I wrote it 20 years after his death. I wrote it, uh, you know, in around 2013. It's called Still I Reach For You. And that's also one of my favorite songs. And it's, it's clearly about him. And it's how 20 years later, you're still gone, but still I reach for you. I wake up in the night and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where you are. So it's still, the, the loss is, you have a wound on your heart and, or a hole in your heart. And it's, it's always there. You can go on and it could scar over and all that. But the, the loss is always there. The, the, you know, like what I lost is is never going to be taken away, really. So. so much loss. I remember I was directing drag shows during this time, and we lost a performer. And then, of course, we lost Larry Leffler. And uh, he was a, a guide of sorts. I'd gone to visit him, asking for advice before I started directing these shows. Larry Leffler was a tremendous loss. And I'm sorry to say with all the, you know, in the, in the last 18 months, I've lost 26 friends and colleagues, some of them very dear people to me, very, very close. My piano mentor who got me into my career as a piano player my age, we had the very same birthday, but we lost him to stage four cancer. He had about a three, four month prognosis. He hung in there for 10 or 11 months. So we had him for a while, but it was a very painful goodbye. It's been very weird for me to adjust this past year as a piano player and not and not have him to call. Just if I have a little problem that he's not here anymore. He has to live on in his spirit. He's always looking over my shoulder. This, we're talking about Ben Fleck, of course. He's a the best piano player, the, the greatest straight ahead piano lounge player in, in Seattle, bar none. And he was my mentor. He's the one who convinced me to try this full time. God bless him for that. But he's always looking over my shoulder saying, oh, play it a little simpler. Keep it pretty. You know, he always told me that. Vic, I'm curious, did that time during the AIDS epidemic, did that prepare you for what we're going through now? That's a really good question because people are asking it a lot. And people have said to me when I've mentioned that number, you know, 26 people really in 18 months, that seems too high. I don't, no one knows that many people with COVID. And I go, they're not all COVID. Only six of them are COVID. I think eight of them are cancer. And a lot of them got a really late diagnosis because they couldn't get their annual checkup in person. They had to wait a few months. They had to go do their blood draw separately. They weren't able to see their doctor or get their usual medical care. So they got a late diagnosis, sometimes stage three or four cancer. And it wasn't, it was too late. A couple people are suicides. That was really mind blowing. It, it's kind of a more volatile time altogether. Gee, it feels like 1989 again. And 1989 was, I guess, it was kind of the peak year for, for me personally, where it just seemed we were going to a funeral once a month. And it was just like, oh, my God, when is this going to? In my own case with Lance, he just missed the cocktail. He really just missed it by about 10 months. That could have saved his life. Oh, Vic, the injustice. Dark times indeed for everyone. And that's why we need to hear more of your music. I think it's time for another tune so we can alter our mood, alter our temperature. This song is called Living in a Blue State. Yeah. 
on the good times Then revolution came Misdemeanors and hot crimes Had throwing rounds some blame Now there's too much aggression No one's ever tamed Now we're facing recession Nothing, nothing stays the same That's a happy song. I really, I'm glad you played it because uh, I'm really proud of that song, actually, because it was, it was born out of uh, me meeting then presidential candidate Barack Obama. I was called up and said, would you, would you play for him at the Weston Ballroom? You know, he's going to be the Democratic nominee that just happened. So you could be playing for the next president. And I went, uh-huh. I remember getting the call and I went, who is this? <laughs> Are you friends with my twin sister, Carla? I thought I was being pranked, so I hung up the phone. And then a, a few hours later, they called and they said, don't you remember meeting us? We were six lawyers. We were part of the West Coast Obama for President team. You played the piano for us at the brunch spot, Salty's on Up. I went, oh, that was you guys. I went, okay. Then I remembered and I went, holy cow. And they said, he likes a song on your album called Last One Singing the Blues. Would you play that at the rally, at the, at the Western Ballroom for him? And I thought, he listened to my album. And I thought, that was the first song on it. Maybe that's the only one he listened to. But <laughs> so I did, of course. It was really fun. But meeting him was quite exciting. And the guy who took that picture of us that ran in about seven newspapers and one magazine and was like, oh my gosh, I, I really met him. And there we are. It was just really funny that... Anyway, it became, it inspired me to write Living in a Blue State for him and for that whole experience. My friend who was part of the Democratic Party leadership in Washington State, Judy Jones, she said, you got to make it a kick-ass song. You write a really, really, write, give it to the, you know, really punch out the GOP. I didn't want to get that specific. I wanted it to be kind of about a, more about a relationship. If anyone who's liberal or progressive falls, kind of starts hanging out and having a relationship with someone who's like far right, kind of like Madeline and, you know, the Raging Cajun during the Clinton years, that type of relationship. How do you juggle that? I wanted that to be part of it. At the same time, I wanted it, I wanted to play the piano on it the way Norman Durkee played piano on Bop and Turner Overdrive's Taking Care of Business. Because when I was 14, I heard that song and I went, wow, that piano player, that's real rock and roll piano playing. I want to play like that someday. Little did I know that I'd come to Seattle and I'd actually meet Norman Durkee, thanks to you, by the way. <laughs> uh, Norman Durkee, a very, very special friend and a local treasure. He was like a humble Houdini who knew the secret combination. Norman was well known for writing and performing musical scores for marquee names and local plays, as well as the ballet. And he wrote catchy jingles for national commercials. And when international exhibits came to town, Norman was called upon to compose the score. And he'd worked as a studio musician for years on rock and roll anthems like Taking Care of Business. You know, he loved that song, Born in a Tent. Every time he saw me at the end of his life, he goes, you know that song about the tent he wrote? That's a good song. So that, that meant the world to me. And, and thanks again, by the way. That song on that album, that's dedicated to Norman. And I had some really good players on that. Dave Pascal was on bass. Spencer Haveskelin was doing the lead guitar. And I remember we were doing something we don't always do in the recording studio. We were going to try and do it live, only without my voice. 
you know, I would, I would put the lead vocal in later. I had to really concentrate on the piano. Pascal was a very renowned sound engineer and bass player in Seattle. They call him Gig Kid because he works more than anybody. But he said, you guys, you better concentrate because we're not doing more than two takes of this. And we could nail this if everybody just really concentrates. And I was like, let's do it for Durkee. And we did two takes. And the first take was perfect. Ah, me complimenti. When life is good. So, hey, Vic, let's uh, let's touch upon some of your collaborations. And if you're from Seattle and if you're into the art scene, the modern dance scene, you love Wade Madsen. Wade has been at Cornish College teaching dance and choreography, I think, for 30 years, over 30 years now. He is a beloved local treasure. He's one of these renaissance men. He's been in a, a number of movies. He's a very good actor. He does performance art. He does work with other choreographers where he's usually the featured performer. You know, he's even older than me and he's still dancing. And he's, I'm happy to say I cast him in his first play. I directed him twice early on. He was kind of pretty terrified of acting, but he isn't anymore. I, I by no means take credit for that. At the same time, he put me in a couple of dance pieces with his dance company. And I think that happened twice. And I went, that ain't happening again. <laughs> We learned a lot from each other. We're both kind of Renaissance men. And what we did land on that was, was pretty fun and successful for a while was the Phoenicia and Vic. He does a drag character named Phoenicia. I was the long-suffering piano accompanist for Phoenicia, kind of like Kiki and her, but we came first. The whole dynamic about Phoenicia and Vic is that she's a recovered alcoholic. And like some recovered alcoholics, they have trouble remembering aspects of their life. And she did remember that not only was the piano player the guy that was kind of booking all the gigs for them and taking care of her, but they were once lovers. So this was much agony to the piano player. And Phoenicia went on trying to remember song lyrics and entertaining the audience. So it was a weird little act. I began really taking songwriting seriously because the more we did the show, I thought we need more original songs. I've, I've kept a lot of these songs and some of them I've recorded on the albums. There's one on my last full studio album before the retrospective called Café Pluvia. The opening track is a very up-tempo number called Don't Start the Show Without Me, which I rewrote for me as a piano player. And it's a song people tell me too many times, you write too many sad songs. And I would tell them, well, yeah, give me a sad song and I'm happy. I love sad songs. And you need to be up-tempo, give us something happy. So that was a song I wrote. I wanted it to sound like the Ricky Ricardo Orchestra. And it's very uplifting. And I used to say, this is the song I wrote to get myself out of bed in the morning when a cup of coffee isn't going to cut it. So it's very happy, uplifting. It makes me want to get going with my day. So Don't Start the Show Without Me was, was born out of the Phoenicia and Vic collaboration. It was nerve-wracking for Wade, who isn't a customary singer. When you're doing drag, you're singing in falsetto. He would always be sick on opening night. I'd say, you're hypo you make yourself sick because you don't waste your energy being nervous. Try to meditate and give it your best because, you know, people come to see us because they, he's a great performer. You don't have to have a perfect voice if you're a great performer. So we still support one another. He's still teaching and dancing and doing all of that. I don't, I don't know exactly when he's going to retire. I thought he'd retire by now, but I think Cornish needs him too badly. When COVID happened and he was telling me, oh, I have to do my classes on Zoom. How am I going to teach dance and choreography on Zoom? Well, he figured out how to do that. And he was it's apparently very good at it. So they, they can't let him leave yet because there might be more of that in the future. I remember I asked him to be in one of my runway shows at the nightclub. And it was just surreal because he just walked down 
to the end of the ramp. And I think two or three people said, gosh, it felt like it was Jesus Christ up there. He was just hanging in the air. It was just Wade's presence. <laughs> Briefly, when I directed him in Queen and the Rebels, his character gets shot. And in the production, I saw of it on Broadway. And whenever everybody got shot, it was off stage and they dragged the body on stage. And we had this big ramp down the middle of the stage in this production. It was kind of like a catwalk. And I said, when he gets shot, we're going to we're gonna have this exotic lighting effect of just red and blue light and all the other lights will go out. And he ran down the runway in slow motion and then he got shot and he did the slow motion death and everybody said, that was the coolest moment in that production. I never saw anything like that in the theater. First, I thought it was the film and it was him. And I went, I'm sure you thought it was the film. Like we have that in our budget. But anyway, he does that adagio slow motion thing better than just about anybody. I think Bill Evans, the choreographer, he said something, he said something very similar about Wade. He's one in a, one in a thousand dancers. He's so long-limbed and he's so graceful. He, he moves in a very peculiar, specific way that very, very few people can. So that's what gravitates people to him. He's really good at is he can take anybody. He took all the models in that show and he said, "What? let's see what you're going to do when you walk down the runway. And some of them were very good dancers. You know, they were club kids. And he said, he'd say, do some of that. But nobody was twerking at the time, but he'd say, do this and such and such to move. Do that Madonna thing she does in a such and such video. And they, they would do it. And then he would find somebody who had never danced and was walking down and kind of nervous. He said, hey, just do this. And he'd give him a movement to do that was very simple. He, and they'd go like this. And he'd go, perfect. You do that so good. He, he really knew how to take someone's ability level and make them look spectacular and make them feel really comfortable. He's very good at that. That's what makes him a good director as well. But enough about him. Back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's all about you, Vic. So, hey, let's uh, let's move on to our next tune. And this one is called A French Kiss. I know several people have recorded it. And it might be a good time after we finish this song for you to get into the business of being Vic and some of the gigs, some of the venues you play at. Travels far, lose my cool and fall so hard. The way you kiss is just a start. Cause you might miss secrets in my heart. Are you ready for my love? Is there something that I we children in a game or lovers who resist something we can't even name. One of your favorites recorded it, Julie Cassiopo. She does a nice version of it. You know, it all took me quite by surprise because when Lance died and the theater officially ended, we had a great seven-year run. Jane was off to L.A., off and running. 
a lot of people close to me said, you know, you you will have a directing career. People will hire you. You don't need the theater. It, it was a lot to keep going. It was a lot of other people's lives. It was a lot of collaboration. I felt like I was shortchanging me. And did I want to just be a director? Was I going to go back to performing? I took a year off, which is like a, a long time after Lance I took a whole year off. And I think it was Wade who said, why don't you come back and I'm putting a new brand new performance together for On the Boards, part of their new works festival. I want you to sing at the piano while I do this dance. I want you to sing a ballad version of If I Only Had a Brain from The Wizard of Oz, because I'm going to do the, the piece is called Scarecrow and I'm going to be the Scarecrow. So it was a very poignant piece. It was kind of like the scarecrow during his twilight years. It was very mournful and funny. And I did this version of the song. All credit is due to Harry Connick. It's his arrangement. He first did that ballad, Beautiful Thing. And then I took it and made it my own and added my own things to it. But it was really the first time I was alone on the mic at a piano in a public performance. And I, I was very nervous. But um, I've never been that nervous again, though. And I realized I sounded pretty good and I could do this. When Ben Fleck, shortly after that, Ben Fleck said, you really uh, should be a piano player. I had directed him in a play where there was a piano player, and I had written one of the songs for it, which happened to be French Kiss. I, I got in there at rehearsal. I said, it, it, you're not playing it right. It's got to be more of a bossa nova. Since I wrote it, let me show you. And the minute I started playing, he said, oh, my God, you're, you're a good director, but you're supposed to be a piano player. You have the knack. So he convinced me to be his understudy and try it. And then he started getting me work. And before you knew it, it happened very quickly. I was working full time as a piano player and I was making more money than I could as a special events promoter, a PR guy or anything else I was doing to supplement my theater career, which was going, was again, it was one of those points in my life where it was going nowhere. <laughs> I would interview for directing jobs everywhere from Seattle rep to the annex. and I wouldn't get the job. I'd go, oh my God, I can't get work. But maybe that was for a reason because I had this other thing waiting to happen. You have to kind of throw caution to the wind and go, well, you know, just keep moving forward as best you can and other variables will come in. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting how life works that way. It was very different. You know, when I started 22 years ago, there was a lot of venues. There was a lot of, I was getting calls all over the place. I remember when Canlis called, I had only been working full time for about a year and they called me up and said, um, we asked a number of people to give us a list of piano players we thought would be good here on New Year's Eve, maybe with their trio or quartet. And your name was on every list we asked for. So we thought we'd call you first. And I went, oh. And I said, well, we talked a little bit. And I said, let me call you back. I have a, I'll have a business event about, about to start. I didn't. I called up my bass player. This is how green I was. I said, um, Canlis just called me. They want me for New Year's Eve. And he said, you're, and he said, you're kidding. They called you? <laughs> it's yes. I said, they want a quartet. Now, tell me quickly, what is that? I know it's four people, but is it is it me plus three? Or is it me at the piano plus four? What's a quartet? And he would I remember him going, oh, I have to teach you everything. No, the quartet would include you. <laughs> You know, music, live music venues just continue to shrink as people started using spin doctors and DJs, and that's fine. A lot of the weddings, I, I think one year I did about 30 or 40 weddings, and when the, when the DJ craze really hit hard, I think the next year I did five. 
but the year after that, I did 10 because they were starting to combine. Let's have the live music. Let's have the band or the quartet. Let's have a jazz quartet. Play the reception and play during the dinner. And then when we cut loose for dancing, we'll have the DJ. So sometimes they would combine us, which is, I think, is a good way to go. Sometimes still, they just hire my whole band and have three of us show up for the dinner, do jazzy trio stuff. And then the drummer and the guitarist join us and we rock out. But those are like six-hour gigs. Those are really, those are hard. <laughs> I only did one last year. It was during COVID, but they did it on the waterfront for 22 family members only. And then a year later, which is now, they were going to have a bigger event for people, friends and family from all over the country, you know, the 150 person event. But they did it last summer for just the 22. And it was very hoity-toity and very social distance. We were far away from them as we played. It was kind of funny. Oh, right. And the impact of COVID. You know, I'm having more trouble this year than I did last year. El Gaucho, which is a high-end, you know, steakhouse and seafood place. They've always had, I would call the main piano players, headliners. The Aqua El Gaucho was where Ben Fleck was the headliner for 25 years. I worked there as the call-in guy for that same amount of time, thanks to Ben. Another place that I worked at very regularly is the Washington Athletic Club. And during COVID, they hired me to come in for 20 weeks to do Friday nights because there is a private club. The people feel safe. They can kind of go and wear their masks. By this point, all of them are vaccinated. And so it's kind of, it's got all, it fits all the parameters of what we're dealing with. It's a very high end. It's, you know, it's a very exclusive club. It was nice to have that happening when it did because it gave me something of a normal gig to enjoy. The other thing that happened in the last 15 years is that I became very good at something called music therapy for people living with dementia, stroke rehab, and more, most importantly, Alzheimer's. A lot of the places I work in are lockdown units where it's a memory care that people need 24-7 attention. And what they've discovered since 2008 is that music operates in the brain very differently than they previously thought it did. And some of the therapy you're capable of having happen for these people is it fires up every part of their brain. For instance, if Alzheimer's has destroyed the section of the brain that lets them recognize faces like their daughter or their son, it could fire that up for a couple hours even and they can recognize them. Or if they have lost the ability to talk or complete a sentence. After music therapy, they might be able to do that for the rest of the day. Eventually, it goes back to its previous level of degeneration. But it's, it's kind of like a little miracle burst. They just discovered this. What's been difficult is to format a cognitive therapy to go with all that. So find the therapist who can do it. For some strange reason, I'm able to do it rather successfully. And they ask me every year, how come it works with you? But a lot of the other people come in here and they, they just can't get through to them. And I go, it's very simple. They, they're all looking at music. You have to look at the people. <laughs> it's that simple. That's the only reason it works with me. I can play the piano with one hand and, and turn my body and face them and look at them. And then they all kind of come forward, they come closer to me in their wheelchairs and they, they know I'm actually there. A couple of times early on, someone would take their shoe off and throw it at me to see if I was they were hallucinating or whether I was actually there. And thankfully, since I was looking at them, I would just catch the shoe, you know, that type of thing. But they do all sorts of, they get very lively. In fact, when COVID hit, the CDC, the state health department, they all observed what we were doing and they let me stay as long as I was in a mask, in a helmet, and was covered up. 
it's, it's really hard to sing and talk when you have a mask and all that stuff. I had to rehearse at home just to make sure I could be understood before. But you know what's odd? The therapy works even more with all that. I think because they have no one visiting them. So when I do go in, it's more needed. They come, they, you know, they, they respond even more. It's very odd. I thought the opposite would happen, that with all this covered up, they wouldn't recognize me. That's the other thing. They always recognize me. It's the music guy. So they, it's weird for those that they, they wake up every day and they don't recognize the attendant that's taking care of them every day. But I come in two or three times a week and they always go, oh, look, it's Victor, the music guy. <laughs> so, so that's what music can do. It's a, it's a, I'm not, I'm really not exaggerating. That's kind of an example of what it, it, the effect of therapy has. So that was happening also. So as the venues closed down, I was keeping my job in music therapy. I was avoiding unemployment and the PUA assistance because I had enough work to make some money and keep my, my little mortgage payment happening and anything else. I was, I was just keeping the lid on. Sadly, with the Delta variant, we had to lay off half the people there. It's like an Israeli boot camp, someone called it. I said, it's exactly like that. I mean, at one point I was being tested four to eight times a week. I'm not kidding. Because they really, you know, it's a senior residence and they have to take extraordinary precautions. And I'm glad they do. And because of that, I could keep working. On the other hand, three weeks ago, they had to lay me off and it's going week to week. So I'm going to find out when I can go back. And it, it kind of fills me with anxiety, not just for me and my income, but it, I worry about them. I worry about them and the residents because I think they really, I think they really need the music therapy. That's so intense and inspiring. I mean, only you, Vic, would come up with these stories. Who knew music therapy? That's beautiful. We're winding down here, so I think it's time for our final song. And this is a very fun, fun duet with the award-winning Duffy Bishop. It's a fantastic song. <laughs> Someone called it a worldwide song. And it's called a Fruitcake Blues. What makes a fruitcake, nobody seems to know The tragic way you have to take that gift from a friend or a foe The gift that keeps on giving And giving and giving and giving The shelf life is forever It keeps living and living and living Fruitcake, fruitcake, your big fat fruity fruitcake Full of gummy bears and coke Don't eat them alone, you might choke on the big fat fruitcake. 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 He gives it to her. He gives it to him. He gives it to them over there. That keeps on giving. And they bring it back. Nobody wants to eat it. Not even for a snack. I have to say, I wrote that was one of the songs I wrote about 20 some years ago for the Phoenicia and Vic show, the Fruitcake Blues song. 
at some point he wanted to give the audience a present. And so he would throw these little fruitcakes at them he baked that were all wrapped up. A very funny little thing, but usually I would just vamp a bluesy kind of Christmas music while he did this and improv with the audience. But it got longer and longer and longer each night. I went, oh, good Lord, I, you got to have a song here. So I said, I know, I'll, I'll write a song called The Fruitcake Blues. I made it a point up to them to never write a song about food because I, I don't like songs about food. I don't, there aren't too many I can think of offhand, but I, I told myself I would never write one. And here I was going to write fruitcake blues. <laughs> and then I realized, well, fruitcake really isn't food. It's got so much crap in it, you know? So that's kind of how I came up with the line. It's full of gummy bears and Coke. I actually made a fruitcake once and they said, throw some Coca-Cola in it with uh, all the candy you can find. And I thought, that's a weird thing. And, you know, how many people eat fruitcake? A lot of people do love it if it's, you know, a serious tasting thing. But then I told Wade, I'm going to make it, I'm going to write a song that Duffy Bishop would sing because I love her blues. At the time, I knew her and we had modeled together, oddly enough. (laughs) And I was so excited about meeting her. When she heard me sing, she said, you should always sing. You sing with your heart and your soul. I love that. I thought you were just going to be another songwriter who wrote things at the piano. And I went, oh. And she always encouraged me. I think I'm still at it because, of course, we stay in touch. And I told her, you know, I wrote the song with you in mind for the Phoenician Vic show and the part where he throws out called Fruitcake Blues. She thought it was hilarious. We tried to record it a couple of times and, you know, 20 years go by and I said, gee, I'm going to record that song before this Christmas if it's the last thing I do. And as it turned out, it is the last thing I recorded. It came out on Christmas 2019, right before COVID. And she even said, thank God we finally recorded that or we probably never would have gotten to it. And I got all the people I wanted for it. We, we threw in some fun background vocals at the last minute. I kept, I had all these different arrangements of the song through the years. And even when we were recording it, I changed the arrangement and threw in a second saxophone solo. And I, I have to say, of all the singles I've made, of all the single tracks, that has got to be my favorite because there's so much in it. And of course, it has it has Duffy Bishop. Me hanging in there with her, you know, it was really, really fun. You've worked with so many musicians. So some must be easier than others. Some of them surprise me because they're very successful and famous. They travel around the world. They're not so nice to the sound crew during sound checks. They're not. They hate to repeat themselves. And I go, boy, I'll never behave like that. <laughs> I usually find myself being the piano player, going over to the sound crew afterwards and saying, is everybody okay? I mean, I think you're doing a great job. but Because it's hard. And I'm not a techie. As you know, I have my tech crew to do this. It's, it's one more thing I don't want to have to learn. It's just as a slight offshoot. Now everybody in music is learning to make their, they're all learning to be engineers so they can have their own home recording studio. And I go, oh, great. One more thing to make us all be trapped in our own cubicles, you know, like social media hasn't alienated us enough, but, or Zoom. But anyway, that's another sidetrack. Then there's someone like Duffy Bishop, who is, she's so modest about everything. And um, I said, Wow. I just found a quote online that Bonnie Raitt or Mavis Staples said about you. And she'll go, oh, yeah, I opened for them for four months on a tour or something. I go, you should put this in your press kit. And she goes, oh, I don't want to I don't want to name drop too much. And I go, well, well, when you work with me, I'm going to put it in. <laughs> I'm going to put it in our media release. Or I'm always kind of amazed at her down to earth humility. Like when I met her, I thought she was going to be like a crazed Janis Joplin diva. You know, that she was going to have a, she's going to be difficult to be around. You know, I had to be on my toes and see what her needs were. But 
she was just like this tender-hearted little Cindy Lauper type that you just wanted to hug. And she had such a big heart and she was always worried about everybody else. That was the biggest surprise for me was meeting her. And then she came to, her and her husband came for a cancer benefit they were going to do with me. And she was moving back to Seattle anyway to do theater with Zanny, but they, she stayed in my house for a week. And that was really fun. She bought me some statuary for my garden and, and my twin sister just, they just fell in love with each other. They go, oh my God, if someone in show business I actually like, said Carla. Carla's not, it's not, she's fussier with people than me and she's she's got a real high bar there, but Duffy Bishop was <laughs> like a sister. So it, that was good. But you know, sometimes you get really surprised. I worked with Harry Shearer from The Simpsons and this is Final Tap. I worked with him and his wife, Judith Owen. And they couldn't have been more fun. They were they treated everybody like royalty. And I think they were doing a they were doing for a couple of years a Christmas tour across America and they gave all the money to Katrina because because he was from New Orleans. You never know. Sometimes they're like real divas and you just can't wait to get through the gig. And other times they turn out to be magnificent, huge hearted people and you go, Thank God they're successful. They deserve it, you know. It's great to pay homage to Jane Taini and Wade Matson, but let's uh, let's talk about Norman Durkee and Teatro Zanzani in particular, because that's a great venue in Seattle and San Francisco. Norman was the musical director for many years, and Norman always had the chance to expand out of Seattle. I mean, I know Bette Midler and Barry Manilow wanted him to tour with them, but Seattle always seemed to keep him content. I remember once he handed me a CD, a compilation of Thelonious Monk. I mean, not many people could pull off all the genres on piano. Seattle was really lucky to have him at the helm. I really, I miss him dearly. You know, I was in great awe of him. And when I, courtesy of you, I, I don't know, you, you gave me that birthday dinner party. I don't know if you remember. And you said, invite three or four of your, your good friends. And one of them was my music publicist at the time, Mike. Another one was Wade Madsen and his boyfriend. My surprise was that at the head of the table was seated Norman Durkee, you know, one of my childhood heroes. <laughs> I was like, I was so embarrassed in a way, and so but so thrilled. And he told us great stories all night. So that's really how I, I got to know him a little better. And then when he'd see me, he was great, very charming and very so, so open armed with me. And of course, he told me which songs of mine he liked. He didn't tell me which ones he didn't, but he'd point out the two or three he liked. He had brought in a performer, Elvis, the Mexican Elvis, to Teatro. He was a big, was a big star. He was very fond of him. And I had, I had begun working with Elvis. We did a little show called Elvis and Elvic on his off night. Norman and Norman was very fussy about his performers who he picked and if he didn't like somebody after he thought they were going to work in this show he would just you know he'd get rid of them because it just wasn't working that bold cut and dried thing with him you know it was he knew what he needed to achieve artistic and what he wanted artistically and if you know if he wasn't cut it wasn't there with you he invited me to be a guest star at Teatro Zanzani and I got to do the special performance and he said, do some numbers with Manuela, the German girl. She's really funny. Figure out some good stuff that you can do. And Manuela and I are still very good friends, by the way. Uh, we did a recording together, but that's another story. It's like six foot one Amazon dominatrix type and 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 uh, with the long blonde hair. Real, uh, but she's capable of doing many things and she's funny. So I had her sing Girl from Ipanema. Uh, I had her sing it in German and it was so funny because it was a very beautiful song. And she would have, I'd have the little waiters go by, the really cute ones, topless. Between the verses, she would... Um, bark out commands in German to them of things she wanted to do to them. It was it was very funny. 
Norman liked that so much. He kept, he stole it for the regular show, for the run of the show. He kept the idea. So that was a, a feather in my hat. So what's going on with Teatro Zanzani now? Is it still still going strong or how's that been affected? Well, what they did is they, they, were, they were very big in Chicago, a third show. And I understand they just opened there with Frank Ferrante, the guy who does the, the Groucho show. He also has another character he does for them called Caesar, Hail Caesar. And he's headlining. They're doing pretty good, I guess. They opened to much fanfare. I don't know what's happening now with the new the new surge and the new territory we're going into. Fall of 2021, it holds so much mystery right now. As we speak, I'm trying to figure out with other band leaders, how are you doing an indoor concert in October? Well, we're vaccinated. And if you're not singing, you wear a mask the whole time on stage. Well, that's good. But you're asking 100 people or 200 to get together in a small space. And even if they're all vaccinated, we can still carry it and transmit it and you can still get really sick. So I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm curious at where people's comfort level and where their conscience is. What's the right thing to do right now? I don't know. All I'm doing is on September 12th, we're going into the studio. And we're going to try to do three tracks and I don't want to perform in public and neither do members of my band. They don't want to, they don't want to take that stuff. So it's, it's about 50-50 right now. The fall has a lot of mystery to it. Well, Italy uh, is doing extraordinarily well. It's a country full of hypochondriacs, and it's also a country with a very, very strong sense of social consciousness. So uh, where I think we're holding strong at about 6,000 cases a day, something like that. So we're doing well, having been hit first. Germany is doing all right. France is doing well. And Italy hopes to have the entire population vaccinated by the end of September. I mean, unlike the, you know, the States and the UK, there's just a lot of mixed messaging, unfortunately. Um, America is not there yet. America is a mess because you could go state by state and it's doing very differently. There are huge surges in the South. Florida has got the fastest infection rate and the most dramatic surge. I read something this morning. I don't know how true it is. That's the other thing. I have to fact check everything to death. But I read that it was the most dramatic surge and the most dangerous place to be on the planet this week. I go, poor Florida. Texas is right behind them. There's all these political games going on and a lot of people following that. I think the misinformation age enabled by social media and the fastness of all of this technology is has been very destructive. It's, it's made some things more tra- transparent. You can't get away with stuff as much as you used to. At the same time, you could spread misinformation easily and get a bunch of followers. I think that's slowed this country down tremendously, and it shouldn't have. Hmm. You know, we've covered a few decades of the art scene in Seattle and, and beyond. Where do you uh, where do you see it going? What's what's going on now? The digital age has brought a lot more virtual presence to music, musicians, theaters, even theaters have had to do things virtual the last year. The rep, ACT, they've all had projects far more limited in scope, of course, but they've done them virtually. I don't know if you're aware, the Seattle Opera just did an opera with all kinds of virtual dynamics happening from the orchestra. A member of my band, Rob Whitmer, he was the sound designer for this huge event. It's hard to keep up with how they did it, but I go, boy, that must have been really hard. And they had to postpone at one point because a couple of the soloists tested positive. So everything has to shut down. You don't see that kind of thing going on from, from here to eternity. You know, At some point, people are going to want to have everything live again and be able to sit under the stars or in a theater. But I'm worried about the identity of Seattle as a city because it keeps getting gentrified. It keeps getting Amazon is taking over a lot of the downtown area. There are all sorts of problems for any midsize to independent artists. 
I am more of a solo artist with his own band and trying to forge my identity as a singer-songwriter. Now, I still will direct a cabaret act if that comes back. But, you know, I still have a little bit of directing going on. But that is much different than having the band full-time or having a theater company to run, which is why I think I moved into music. A band was like a theater company, only much smaller. I could manage it better. I was getting employed more. That's really how my niche happened. I worry about the Seattle of then, which was, as you say, robust. You know, we gave birth to Nirvana. We had all this stuff going on. We are still castigated as the most liberal, progressive, weird city. You know, Donald Trump did a number on us saying that all the weird, the weirdest people in America live in Seattle. Well, long before Nirvana, Seattle had a great music scene. You know, Quincy Jones and his jazzy days started in Seattle. His brother, Judge Richard Jones, married us officiated at our wedding down there on 4th Avenue at the courthouse, and I got to know him, and he shared some fantastic stories about his uber-cool brother Quincy. But the art scene has always truly thrived in Seattle, but I, I suppose change is happening everywhere. Not entirely, but, you know, it's it's shrinking, and it's, it's cause for concern. Also, I mean, for instance, the two major jazz venues in Seattle were always Jazz Alley, which books things on the national and international circuit. It's the most expensive place to go. And then there was always Tula's Jazz Club, which got much of the same people, maybe at a lower tier slightly, or maybe they were just nationally known. But it also regularly presented all the local stars, Thomas Marriott, Greta Matassa, all of them, Dee Daniels, the list goes on. I'm, I'm happy to say that I played that venue a couple times with Nora Michaels and myself. You know, it's gone. It's it's not it closed just before COVID because it had run its course. It was suffering from the economics of it all. There was something happening with the lease of the building. Their rent was going to double or something after being there for thirty some years. That's a huge loss for Seattle Tula's Jazz Club because it was so half the major jazz venues at that level. One half of it is gone. There's other places that the Earshop Jazz Organization still produces a festival every year. They're using the Royal Room, which is in my neighborhood, Columbia City. They're using that more and more. And that's a very nice venue. I was trying to perform there this month, but they've postponed their opening to the public. And again, they're doing it really cautiously. They're doing most of it virtual. But there's a couple live nights planned, I think, in October that they're, they're hoping will be ready to open up again. But the virtual thing is something I'm kind of letting go of. I don't want to, unless it's for a corporation. As I said earlier in the, this podcast, I did very well in 2020, better than I am now, because once a month I had a corporate gig for my trio or my quartet, including my other singer, Arwen Dewey, who's the other lead singer in my band now. She's a gal who sings in four languages, by the way, that I... That's why we did the duet French Kiss. We did it in French and English. There's, there's, many, there's many versions of that song, by the way. So speaking of, when are you going back into the recording studio, Vic? September 12th, we're booked. Uh, we've been trying to get back in since June, but I think it's September 12th. We're going back to late foundation tracks, which means me, the bass player, and my drummer in separate rooms. <laughs> and we lay down the foundation tracks for three songs. One of them is a brand new song I wrote for Duffy Bishop called Bad Neighborhood. The other one is a song I wrote for Black Lives Matter. It took six months to write it last year during the summer marches here in Seattle, where there were a lot of them. Uh, there was the whole chop thing happening. There was the national spotlight on us. There was the election. I wrote the song. I wrote it for a specific singer. She's interested, but now other singers are interested in it. 
My saxophone player, Medeiros Dixon, who just happens to be the nephew of James Brown, I might throw that in. Very talented. He's a star on the rise. He's worked with me for nine years, and he's been a champion of the song. So his support of it has meant the world to me, because a lot of people have said, why did you write a song about Black Lives Matter? Why? Why? You shouldn't be doing that. Leave it to the black artist. I just went, oh, I'm sorry. But there, you know, who wrote Strange Fruit for Billie Holiday? That was Brooklyn Jew, right? It's everybody's problem. So that's how I looked at that. And having his support has meant a lot to me. So that's one of the foundation. I decided I would make a demo in my key so I could sing it to people so they could hear how I feel about it. I'm going to give that demo to the black singers that want, are interested in it and heard about it. That started out as a poem and it became, I, I consider it one of my most important songs and one of the best set of lyrics I've ever written. I'm very proud of it. Very proud of it. It's called Blues for a Crow. Then the third song is a simple parody I wrote called C3 Queens, which is going, uh, it's, a, it's a takeoff on C3 Kings. So it'll be my new holiday single. It's very funny. And I hope there's a video to go with that. So good. So get back to that recording studio, Vic, so you can entertain us. We need it now more than ever, especially your style of singing and songwriting. You're sweet. Thank you. This has been fun to reconnect with you, and I appreciate it so much for you taking the time to do something this thorough. You were very well prepared and researched, and you made me really look at the last 40 years and try to refine exactly what has gone down and how I can articulate it and apply it to today so that I could have a good autumn and winter, shall we say. Thank you. So, hey, I hope you enjoyed that. And before we close out with another song, I want to let you know how you can get in touch with Vic and support him. You can find him on Facebook by searching Victor Janusz and Victor Janusz Band. And you can follow his link to buy his songs. It's at hearnow.com. And specifically, the link is V-I-C-T-O-R-J-A-N-U-S-Z-B-A-N-D dot hearnow.com forward slash a dash song dash two dash love arrivederci A song to love 